Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today celebrating our freedom in Christ. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Head Coverings and Christian Witness. I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. You know, it's been years ago now, but I have a memory of preaching this text in church. I was wondering then, how do I get at this thing and help people to see that every Bible verse is relevant and helpful to their spiritual growth? More than dealing with a controversial text, I thought something far greater was at stake. How do I help people to passionately examine every Bible text so that they'll willingly look for ways to understand and apply, thanking God for his guidance in their lives? You know, I was sitting in my office looking out the window and musing that question, and as I looked out, I watched our worship pastor pull up in his vintage 1960s convertible Mercedes-Benz sports car. It's a beautiful day. The top of the car was down, and I watched as our worship pastor wore his sunglasses while his wife had the greatest summer hat on. He had his bare head and she with her hat, and I must say, the two of them looked like the coolest couple in the world. And I remember thinking, you see, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Her with a hat and him without one. I mean, how perfectly stylish is that? But of course, this passage has nothing to do with style. And furthermore, why in the world would God be concerned with hats? Does God care about wearing of hats and and who wears them? Now, I have another memory related to this passage. I was teaching at a Christian university in Romania, a class on preaching and interpreting the Bible, and I thought I would use this very passage as an example of a difficult text to handle. I didn't yet know much about the Romanian church and was naively walking into a hornet's nest. You know, we'd hardly begun when I realized I'd stepped on a landmine. Romanian Baptist churches mandate that all married women must wear some form of head covering during their worship, and the idea that I didn't believe this to be necessary, well, that branded me as a liberal. One student became very emotional and gave me a lecture about obeying the Bible, and we were soon embroiled in controversy, and I was looking for a way out of it. And so there it is. Western churches expect that their preacher or Bible teacher is going to tell them that God doesn't care about hats, and that in the end, this is a command that relates only to the early church in some way, and a number of other places throughout the world think it a sign of biblical faithfulness. If you listen to yesterday's program, you heard me addressing the question of equality and submission in the Trinity. We heard that Jesus, who has for all eternity shared in full equality with the Father, yet submitted himself even to death on a cross. And in that, we got a sense that submission is not demeaning, nor a form of groveling, nor is it an admission that someone is inferior to the other. 
There's something unique about the Christian form of submission. See, everyone is to submit to God. God's people are to submit to the apostles. Local churches are to submit to their lawful elders. Christians were to submit to secular governing authorities. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Children are to submit to their parents. Slaves were to submit to their masters. And in some fashion, all believers were to look for ways to submit themselves to one another, putting the needs of others ahead of their own. Now, we might say, yes, yes, but aren't we talking about head coverings? I mean, isn't that really the issue in this passage? Well, let's find out. See, all of us should know that although the roles of men and women have been a battleground in our society, it really shouldn't be so among us. A text like this one really should be a reason for peace and rejoicing in the body of Christ. This text wasn't written to make us angry and suspicious about the opposite sex, but to help us understand the uniqueness and beauty of our sexuality. But why hasn't this text done that? Well, for one, Our marching orders should not come from our own culture or our own feelings or desires or even our own conscience. We're the people of God, submitted to Christ's rule in all things. Now, once that's established in our hearts, all that's left is to process and understand and learn and grow in discipleship. See, what I have to say today, I believe, can help us a great deal and allow us to teach our boys how to become men, not androgynous, not bisexual, not confused over their sexuality, but men, godly men. And what we have in this text allows us to teach our girls to become women, strong women of faith who know how to live life and celebrate being a woman of God as was intended. So where do we begin? Let's start by setting out three basic principles for establishing the God-given roles inherent in being a man or being a woman. First, we do so by establishing that Christ's authority over this matter, well, it's absolute. Look at verse 3. But I want you to understand this, that the head of every man is Christ. Now, that should be the most welcome or the most controversial thing that I say in this entire message. The head of every man is Christ. Now note, it doesn't say of every Christian man, but of every man. Because of who he is, all men and all women, all are required to submit to Christ. You know, some time ago, I read a book entitled, What Jesus Demands of the World. You know, I noticed the title wasn't Christ's Invitation to the World or What Christ Desires of the World, but What Christ Demands of the World. I know that it's right to say that Christ is the head of the church, and I I know that it's right for Christian men to say Christ is the head of every Christian man. I mean, those things are accurate, but they're not sufficient. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We do know that in the final day, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, that means every angel, every human being, every demonic being, either in joyful worship or in terror, will bow to Jesus as head. Now, if that's true of every man, it's true of every power structure, every economic structure, every political structure, every educational structure, every legal structure, every religious structure, every family structure, every personal relationship. Jesus is head, and he who has authority over all will one day judge the world. Listen to John 5:22. Jesus is speaking, and he says, The Father judges no one, 
but has given all judgment to the Son. And since that's true, then doesn't it naturally follow that he is the authority or head over how you express your masculinity or how you express your femininity? He has authority over this. So if you want information on how to be a woman or a man, ask Christ, study scripture, pour over its contents, and ask the Holy Spirit to help your heart find delight in what you read. Now, here's the second principle. Christ is the model of leadership for men. Look now at verse 3, the second part. The head of a wife is her husband. Now, if that verse is taken in isolation, it can mean any number of things, but it isn't taken in isolation. I recently received an email from a woman who told me that her husband regularly quotes this verse. I'm your head, he says, and it's created pain. But of course, that man, while demanding that he be submitted to, shows that he himself is an unsubmissive man. What he demands of his wife has nothing to do with the scripture, and it has everything to do with a self-willed man who will not bend the knee to Christ. Let's take this out of the family and move it to government. In Acts 5.29, the authorities of Israel demanded of Peter and John that they cease preaching Christ. And what was their answer? They said, we must obey God rather than man. Or consider a local church that's governed by leaders that are power-crazed, who care little for the flock, and who demand that the flock submit to them, even while it's clear that these men do not submit to Christ. How should we respond? I hope you see the problem. You see, when many of us think of submission, we think of every single abuse of power that we can imagine and say, how do we submit to that? But what if power is not abused? What if the person who is given authority uses it in the way that God has intended? And that's exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about a man submitted to Christ who has headship over his wife. What can that mean? Hi, this is Ben Lowell. You know what? We're missing you. And the opportunities we've had in the past to get out and meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter, and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. We want to invite you to be part of Back to the Bible Canada's The Gathering, taking place Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us on the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page and enjoy a time together with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced in the days ahead. So mark it on your calendar for this national ministry event, The Gathering. More information is on its way, so keep an eye on backtothebible.ca or sign up for the daily audio mail or monthly ministry update email or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We're looking forward to meeting you there. When the Bible says that the head of a wife is her husband, it's speaking of a husband who knows that Christ is his head. I mean, what kind of a man is that? Well, listen to Ephesians 5.25 where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, the model of your leadership or headship is the example of Christ's sacrificial, loving leadership or headship over his church. 
You want to express headship over your wife? Then die for her, sacrificing yourself so that she might be benefited. So we've been talking about three basic principles for establishing the God-given roles inherent in being a man or a woman. First, settle the matter of Christ's headship. And that leads to the second principle for husbands. Settle the matter that if you are to lead, and you are, you have to lead as Christ directs you to lead, not as you imagine that you should lead. Now, third, notice that Christ is the model for the submission of the woman. Our text says the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Now, I won't repeat what I said yesterday about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Trinity, but I hope you can see something crucial in verse 3. Both men and women look at the cross and see in the cross the demonstration of the roles that they to play. Men should look at the cross and find in Christ the model of leadership, the willingness to lay down their lives in obedience to God for the good of others. And so men emulate Christ by leading your wives and your families in a leadership of love, of forgiveness, of sacrifice, and of setting the spiritual direction for your wives. Men, the cross will teach you how to lead. And so men, if a sacrifice needs to be made, take the initiative. If there's misunderstanding in your marriage and hurt has developed, you take the initiative in humbling yourself first for the sake of your wife. Now, I know, I know, a great many men will say, that's not the kind of leadership that I have in mind. I don't like servant leadership. I like demanding and authoritarian leadership, but that's not what you get in the cross. And women also look at the cross as the model for submission. As Christ submitted to the Father, so women submit to their husbands. Women, if you should say, submission to my husband is degrading or makes me less valuable than my husband or makes me less than a woman, you mock the beauty of the cross. The cross teaches women how precious and noteworthy is the contribution of their submission to their husbands. But in all of this, men and women find their roles, both of them rooted in the cross. Men, you can learn what it is to be a man from Jesus in the cross. Men, lead like he did. Women, you can learn what it is to be a woman from Jesus on the cross. Submit to your husband as Christ submitted to the Father. And that's the basic principle of the roles of men and women. Now, remember, this section of Corinthians is all about Christian freedom. Then learn the freedom that this principle engenders. And finally, let's now get to head coverings. We soon find out from verses 4 and 5 that both husband and wife are involved in worship in their church. And interestingly enough, both the husband and the wife are praying and prophesying. It's not that only the husband is doing that. Both of them are. They are equal partners in worship. Now, I'm not stepping on any landmines here. This is not a passage about leadership in the church or about who preaches. And since this passage doesn't address that issue, well, I'm not going to either. It's about praying and prophesying. And in fact, I'm going to even leave the matter of what constitutes prophecy until we get to chapters 12 to 14, and I'm going to simply pass on the subject now. But would you notice that both men and women worship and use their gifts, but they do so in ways specific to their gender. The man removes his head covering, and the woman covers her head. Now, there's a great deal of disagreement among some solid Bible teachers as to what this actually looked like. 
I mean, some argue that it refers to an actual veil, and others will say, no, it simply refers to a shawl that is worn on the head, and still others will point at verse 15, which says, her hair, that is her long hair, is given to her as a covering. I mean, those Bible teachers will say that the covering means a woman's long hair, which she must not let down or cut. So these Bible teachers will point to Numbers chapter 5, verse 18, where the letting down of a woman's long hair might lead one to suspect adultery and sexual immorality. Now, all of these, which interpretation is right? Well, I don't think we can be dogmatic here. I, I tend to think that some kind of a covering over the head in times of prayer had become an accepted practice or a tradition. Now, while I say that, what I say next is vital. When applying a Bible text, it's often helpful to know the difference between a supracultural truth and the practical application of that truth in the context of a local situation. The supracultural truth remains constant, but the application of that truth in a local situation might be flexible. And so the truth that in worship, husbands and wives should present themselves before God in prayer and in prophesying within the confines in which their relationship expresses obedience to God. You remember 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers, listen to this, your prayers might not be hindered. And there it is. Your experience of worship is hindered and blocked if you will not allow Christ to be the Lord of your marriage. And so in order to express this supracultural truth, the Apostle Paul lays down an application which served very nicely in the church in Corinth. Women cover your head in praying, and in this way, you demonstrate that you submit to Christ's call to accept your husband's leadership in the gospel in your marriage. And men, uncover your head, and in this way, you demonstrate that you submit to Christ's call to lead your wife in the way that Christ has commanded you to lead. I mean, somehow the uncovered head of men in prayer and the covered head of women in prayer was a symbol that everyone accepted in the Corinthian church. It reinforced what they knew to be true in their homes and in their marriages. They're saying, my life at home and my life at church reinforces the same thing. I'm not a hypocrite having one standard for one place and another for another. You'll find me yielded to Christ at church, and you'll find the same in my home. See how tragic it is when one hears of a leader in a church who is an abuser in the home. See, it gives the impression that the church is simply a facade or a show that we put on to impress others rather than the expression of what all of life entails. So I hope you see that there's a difference between the supracultural principle, that is, the relationship between husbands and wives and the consistency of a life that is the same regardless of where we are. There's a difference between that and how that supracultural truth was worked out in the life and in the culture of the local church. So I hope you see that the Bible teaching about head coverings is not relegated to another time, and it is no longer relevant to us today. It's extremely relevant for us. But then what should we make of the struggle of whether we should demand that the culture-bound practice of head coverings still be insisted upon today? 
Now, from my vantage point, a local church is free to reproduce this practice or not. It seems to me that there's nothing wrong with doing it, and there's nothing wrong if we don't. What is required of us is that the relationship of a husband to his wife reflect the relationship of Christ to his church. What is required is that we become consistent both at home and in church in the outworking of our faith. And it does seem to me that we need to find ways of expressing this reality in the customs of the local church. Now, having said that, let us again come to the realization that no text of the Bible is irrelevant to us today. While we do not demand head coverings today, we are well served never to pass over a Bible text and suggest it no longer applies, kind of like throwing it onto the ash heap of history. And that brings me back to the importance of learning to live our lives and our marriages in keeping with Christ's command. What a joy it is when husbands act towards their wives as Christ called them to act. And what a joy it is when wives respond to their husbands as Christ calls them to do so. May this be said of Christian marriages today. John, your message today builds on what we talked a little bit about yesterday in in respect to submission. And I think it's important, again, to define submission properly, in particular in respect to women. Yeah, and I think I'd like to talk a little bit about abuse of women, especially women in a marriage relationship where their husband may be abusing them and they're subject to violence and so forth. Uh, I would say that there is a charge for all churches that a woman should be able to flee to her church and the church should be her place of safety. We ought to be teaching our young daughters, we ought to be teaching women in marriage that submission does not mean that you submit to abuse in your home. In fact, the whole nature of the submissive relationship is a submission of one to another as equals, the woman being equal to her husband, and the two of them involved in a common mission together. So whenever there's abuse and the abuse of someone, uh, we stop having a biblical model, and I believe that God's people have to step in and say, enough of that, that's not what we're talking about, and we ought to be defending our sisters in Christ. I do want to also say that I think a biblical definition of submission, a wife submits to her husband as he spiritually leads them in godliness together. And uh, whenever it stops being godliness and it's about self-centeredness, I think we're not talking about biblical submission at all. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Our world is confusing. Every place we turn, there are new rules and protocols. The daily news can be baffling and disturbing. Our world has never needed us to be clear on what is foundational and what is true. As a friend of Back to the Bible Canada, we know that you care about trustworthy, verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Together with you, anyone seeking to know and better understand the God of the Bible and the significance of a relationship with Jesus will find accessible, relevant, and trustworthy Bible teaching through a dynamic range of mediums and resources. To know more or to offer a gift to support this cause, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of Dr. Neufeld's series, Bible Teaching 
you can trust. 